You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. We're glad you're here with us this morning to worship. Uh, Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. And we will be in chapter 13 today, which is the final chapter of the book. For the past few months, we've been studying through the letter to the Hebrews. It's one of the greatest books in the entire Bible, and it's a really important book because it ties together the Old Testament, the writings that happened before Jesus came, and it links them together with the New Testament. And what it shows us is how the whole Bible, the entire Bible, is a a cohesive whole. It's a whole story that's all about Jesus and how he saves. The two work together, and this book shows us that. So today we're finishing our study of this book, and we are going to be looking at the final chapter today. Next week, we're going to be doing a special two-week mini-series. So starting next week, next week's Palm Sunday. And then the Sunday after that is Easter. So for Palm Sunday and Easter, we're doing a a two-week mini-series called Rise Up. And so I want to encourage you to be thinking about and praying about who you will invite this year to join you at Whitefields for Easter. Um, You know, statistics show that this is one of the best opportunities to have your friends, invite your friends and family members who don't usually go to church to come to church with you. Again, so studies have shown that people who don't usually go to church, they've said that most of them would be willing to go to church, especially on Easter, but only if a friend would personally invite them and come along with them. So I want to challenge you with that. I want to encourage you with that to be praying about and considering who it is that you're going to invite to join you this Easter Sunday at Whitefields. After Easter, we're going to be starting a new series, something a little different than what we usually do here, and that is a series called The Trouble Is. And in that series, we're going to be addressing some of the biggest hurdles that people experience in believing and embracing Christianity. Now, maybe there are questions that you struggle with, or maybe there are people you know who struggle with questions. They struggle with uh, truly wholeheartedly embracing Christianity because there are some barriers, some hang-up that they have, some question that seems to be unanswered for them. And so our goal with this series is to address those things and hopefully remove some of those barriers so that people can receive the gospel and really put their faith in Jesus wholeheartedly. So this morning, let's begin our study of Hebrews 13 by reading our text. We're going to read verses 1 through 16, Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted them. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach which he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to our God, that is, the fruit of our lips, that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of this chapter, and we pray that as we study these words, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would do a transforming work within us. Lord, we pray that we would see you in your beauty, in your grace, in your goodness, Lord, in everything that makes you wonderful. Lord, may we see it, may it be clear before our eyes, and may we truly see the gospel in this passage, Lord, the good news of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done to save us. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have a junk drawer at your house? Junk drawer? I have a junk drawer. So a junk drawer is that place where you put all the random stuff that you don't have any other place for. But you don't want to throw it away because, I mean, some of it's useful, some of it's important, and you don't want to throw it away, so you put it in the junk drawer, and then maybe someday you'll go and retrieve it out of the junk drawer. Now, Hebrews chapter 13 kind of seems like the junk drawer of the book of Hebrews. It's just a bunch of random stuff that the author didn't want to throw away because it's important stuff, but he didn't really have a place for it. So he just kind of dumped it right in here in the junk drawer, chapter 13. Except that's not true. That's not what this is. It, it kind of appears that way at first, right? Like at first glance, it kind of appears like this is just, uh, you know, some extra stuff they didn't have another place for, so we just kind of threw it all in here, and it's just a list of, of moral injunctions, things that we're supposed to do. But I want to show you that if you look closely at this chapter and you give it a second look, you'll see this isn't a junk drawer of extra stuff. What this is is the, the message of this chapter is absolutely cohesive with the rest of the book. It, it's totally in line with the entire argument of what he's been making throughout the book. In fact, really here in chapter 13, he's landing the plane. He's saying, everything that I've set up until now, now I'm going to land the plane, and I'm going to bring it home, and here's what I want you to do with it. So remember, let's get some context first, okay? Remember, this book was originally a letter. It was a letter written to a group of people who were struggling. They were experiencing a lot of hardship and difficulty. Uh, many of them were experiencing these difficulties precisely because they had become Christians, so many of them, because they had become Christians, they had been rejected by their families and their communities because of their new faith in Jesus. And they were facing, some of them were facing other kinds of, of hardships and difficulties like we all do in life. But, and they, they began to ask questions like, like many of us do. They began to ask questions like, if God really loves me, if God really loves us, then why is he letting all of these bad things happen to us? Have you ever asked that question? That's the question they were struggling with. You see, in the face of hardship, in the face of difficulty, they were struggling to hold on to their faith. Maybe there's some of you who can relate to that yourselves. And throughout this letter, the writer has been writing to them, endeavoring through this book, or through this letter, because that's what it originally was, was a letter. He's endeavoring to show them and to show us as well now as, as readers today that the only thing which can make you able to stand, even when everything else in your life is falling apart, is for you to fix your eyes on Jesus, for you to lift up your eyes, for you to look above and beyond your present circumstances and to see the glorious hope that you have in Jesus. That is the only thing that will keep you going when everything gets hard, when your world is shaken, when things fall apart, is for you to fix your eyes upon Jesus, for you to raise your gaze and see above your current circumstances and see the hope, the promise, the grace that you have in Jesus. To see and to remember that in him you have a hope, you have a love, you have an acceptance, you have a value, you have an identity which no amount of hardship in this life can ever take away from you, which no one in this world can ever take away from you. 
And so in each and every chapter of this book, the writer has been pointing us to Jesus, helping us to see Jesus for all that he is, in all of his glory, so that we will confidently place our trust in him. And here in this final chapter, now the writer lands the plane by saying this, okay, I've been urging you to look to Jesus. I've been urging you to trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus. But here's the thing. You'll never be able to do that on your own. You will never be able to do that on your own. You need others to help you do that. You need a community. You need a church. Now remember, this letter was written to address a situation. And the situation it was written to address was that people were leaving the church. People were leaving the church. Why? Because, well, in some cases, it was because they had been ostracized by their families and their friends in the Jewish community. It's called the letter to the Hebrews because it was written to Christians who had grown up Jewish. They had grown up in the Jewish community and now they were being ostracized from the Jewish community by their family and friends, the people they grew up with because of their faith in Jesus. And some of these people were saying, it's too much. I mean, I, I just can't take it. I, I, I'm going to go back. And so they were leaving the Christian community and going back to the Jewish community, which almost always meant renouncing their faith in Jesus. And I think it's really hard for us today to really put ourselves and to understand how devastating it would have been for them to lose their community, to lose that community that they grew up with. We live in what is really the most individualistic society that has ever existed in the history of the world. We believe that our identity is something that we create through our accomplishments. You know, we create a resume. I, I did this. I went to school here. I got this degree. I, I accomplished this thing. That's how we build our sense of identity and our sense of value. But in ancient times and in many cultures today, non-Western cultures, they are not individualistic. They're very community-oriented, which means that you build your entire identity, your entire value in life comes from your family, your tribe, being part of a family. So I want you to understand that for these people, this was no small thing. To be losing their community was absolutely devastating. And we can see it would have been a huge temptation for them. And we see that some fell into this temptation of saying, you know what, it's too much. I put my faith in Jesus and I lost my family. I lost my community. They've turned their backs on me. I can't handle it. So if I have to choose between them, then I guess I'll choose my family. And this letter was written to address that. People were leaving the church. And some of them were probably saying, hey, look, I can still be a Christian in my heart. I can still be a Christian privately. I'm just not going to be part of the church anymore. But the writer's saying, no, that's not how it works. You can't do that. You need a community. I've been telling you over and over, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. But here's the thing, you will never be able to do it. You'll never be able to make it on your own without other people, without a community, without a church. He says this, by coming to Jesus, you may have lost your old community, but God is giving you a new community. And being a committed member of that community is absolutely vital to you being able to stand and being able to continually fix your eyes on Jesus and trust in him no matter what this life brings your way. And so here in chapter 13, the writer is telling us, and that's what I want you to see, is that this is the cohesion of this chapter. The writer is telling us, here's the kind of community that you are called to be. Here's the kind of community that you yourself desperately need in order to make it in this life and to be able to stand in faith and to be able to truly keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And I gotta say, I do think this is a really important message for us to hear today. Because again, we live in the most individualistic society that has ever existed in the history of the world. And how's that working out for us? 
I mean, in some ways, there are benefits to it, but in some ways, it's, it's also disastrous, right? Like, our society is plagued by loneliness. It's plagued by depression. And as a pastor, one of the most common things I hear over and over again is that people are lonely. They are struggling with loneliness. They struggle to find and build and keep deep, meaningful, lasting relationships. And yet, at the same time, We kind of shoot ourselves in the foot, don't we? Because at the same time, as a culture, we are so afraid of letting people in. We are so afraid of letting people get close. We are super vigilant about our privacy. We love our privacy. We're vigilant about guarding our privacy, not letting anybody in. And so we live in this weird space, don't we? Where we want fellowship. We want it desperately, at least in theory. But at the same time, in practice, we avoid it because of the risks involved with it, and we find ourselves frustrated. And so the message of this chapter is extremely relevant to us today, that in order for you to stand, in order for you to grow, in order for you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, you need a community. So the community, by the way, that's one of our core values here at Whitefields. We list our core values as gospel, mission, and community. So gospel, right? The good news of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. We're not here to give you a a list of moral commands. We're here to point you to Jesus and what he's done. Secondly, mission. That's that's another core value that God has given us his mission that we do not only exist for ourselves. Our church does not just exist for us. We exist to spread the love of God in the world. And, And thirdly, community. So we want to connect people with God and with other people who are also seeking God. And so in a few weeks from now, we're going to be kicking off a community group endeavor again. So we're going to be re-envisioning what we do with community groups. We're going to be doing a new approach to it. And we were, here's how it's going to be different. We're going to start community groups that have a fixed start and end date. And so you're not committing for life. You're, You're committing for five meetings, which will happen every other week over the course of 10 weeks. And you'll be hearing more about this. We're going to be announcing this more and more in the coming weeks. But I want to encourage you to commit yourselves, to to take this chance of committing yourself to five meetings, every other week meetings. We're going to have different groups. You can find one that works for you. We're going to start in mid-April. And and we're going to see that. And I want you to see, get involved with one, and then see how you grow as a result uh, of building new relationships. So here in this passage, we see exactly what kind of community we need in order to stand and to thrive in this world that we live in. The title of this message is Citizens of the New City. Citizens of the New City. And here in this section, here's what we're going to talk about. Here's the big idea of the whole section. How to appropriately worship God as resident aliens and members of a new community. Okay, how to appropriately worship God as residents, as resident aliens and members of of a new community. So we're going to break that down into three parts and look at each of those three parts separately. So let's begin by talking about the first part that's found here in our text, how to appropriately worship God. This section really begins at the end of chapter 12. So if you look up a few verses from where chapter 13 begins and look at chapter 12, you'll see there that the author says in verse 28, he says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. See, the only acceptable response to all that God has done for us, for for sending Jesus to rescue us, for welcoming us into his family, for giving us eternal life and an unshakable kingdom, the only appropriate response to that is for us to worship, for us to worship him. But the question is, 
Well, what exactly is that? Like, what does it even mean to worship? And how do we do that? And how does God want us to worship him? What is appropriate worship? In Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, Paul the Apostle addresses this exact same question. What is appropriate worship? What is the worship that is befitting God in light of what he has done for us? And here's what Paul the Apostle says there. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, in other words, because of what God's done, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, there's that word again, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So he says, here's what true worship looks like. It means signing over the title deed of your life. Signing over the title deed of your life over to God. Everything that you are, everything that you have, giving it to him. That is the only appropriate response to what God has done for you in Christ. Now, let me say this. This concept, this language of sacrifice, of giving your life to God as a living sacrifice, this would have been particularly meaningful for these people who had been born and raised in Judaism because in Judaism, the way that you worshipped God was by making sacrifices. In the book of Leviticus, we read about the, the Jewish sacrifice. There were five sacrifices that were made in ancient Judaism. If you're interested, go check out Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. They're all outlined there, what they were for and how they were done and all that. One of the sacrifices, for example, was the fellowship offering. So in this fellowship offering, you would make this sacrifice, and sometimes it would be meat, sometimes it would be something made out of dough. Uh, and you would make this sacrifice in order to express that you desired to have fellowship with God. You desired to have a relationship with God. Another sacrifice was the sacrifice of dedication. And again, you would take this, you slaughter an animal, you would take the meat from the animal. In the sacrifice of dedication, you would burn it on the altar, but you would burn it until it completely burned up. There would be nothing left. There would be nothing for you to take home. It was all gone. And what that represented, what it symbolized, was your, your idea, your, your desire to be yourself, totally devoted to God, to hold nothing back, to say, I'm all in, 100%. And that image of the burnt offering, which symbolized total dedication, that's the image that Paul draws on here in Romans chapter 12, where he says that true worship, the true worship that God desires, is for you to live your life, your whole life, as a living sacrifice, for you to give yourself completely and wholly over to God. Here in Hebrews chapter 13, now the author draws on that same imagery, the imagery of sacrifice. He uses that word sacrifice two times to describe how we're to worship God. He says in verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to our God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge him. And then in verse 16, he says, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So one of the big points the writer has been making throughout this letter to the Hebrews is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was in the Jewish religious system. So in other words, everything in Judaism was a picture of Jesus that pointed to him and who he would be and what he would do. And one of the things that we were told in chapters 9 and 10 is that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And so for a Jewish person, this would have been you know, leaving them feeling a bit curious and empty, perhaps, and wondering, well, what do I do next? So, so they would say, look, if Jesus ended the sacrificial system, but sacrifice, that was how we worshiped God. So if Jesus ended the sacrificial system, then now how, how do we worship God if there's no more sacrifices to be made? And here, the author is answering that question. He says, this 
is the new kind of sacrifice. This is what acceptable worship looks like. This is how you sacrifice now that Jesus has come and been that one time for all sacrifice to end the old system. Now in the new system, this is how you worship. This is how you sacrifice. Verse 15, by offering a sacrifice of praise. In other words, we sing, we praise him, we use our lips, we use our mouths to praise his name. And 16, we don't just stop there. It's not just in word, it's also in deed. Verse 16, we worship God by the way that we live in the world. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his followers, his disciples, he told them this. He said, I'm building a new community. And this community I'm building, it's going to be like a city on a hill for all the world to look at and to see. And your good deed will be the light of the world. That's an interesting phrase, the light of the world. Because there's another time when we have it recorded that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And yet here he is telling his disciples, your good deeds are the light of the world. Brings up a question like, okay, so which one is it? How does this work? Is it he who's the light of the world or is it our good deeds that are the light of the world? Well, the way it works, of course, is kind of like how the sun works with the moon. So Jesus is the source of the light and we, like the moon, reflect that light. We have no light of our own. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter one, it actually tells us that. It says that in him, in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. In other words, we don't have any light of our own. We just reflect his light as it shines on us. And that's the kind of people we're called to be. People who show the world, who reflect to the world who our God is by the way that we live. People who reflect the love, the grace, the kindness that he has shown us. We reflect that to those around us. Sometimes we talk as Christians about the glory of God. Or we'll say that, you know, we want to glorify God. Well, what is that? What does that actually mean? Like, what does that really mean? We know the word glory simply means light. It means a bright, brilliant, magnificent light. That's what glory means. And God's glory is that which is beautiful about him. It's his goodness, his beauty, his majesty. It's that which makes him wonderful and great. And when we talk then about glorifying God, what does that mean? What it means is that we make his glory visible to others to make his glory visible, to make it seen. We lift it up. See, it's already there. It already exists. We're not creating it. It's already there. We're just helping other people to see it. We're helping other people to recognize it, to see those things that are truly amazing and wonderful and good about him. And so along with worshiping God, with our mouths and with our words and song and in word, we also worship God and we respond to the gospel by living in a way that reflects who he is to the world. So again, this chapter is about how do we appropriately worship God as resident aliens and members of a new community. So let's look at the second part. How do we worship God now as resident aliens? Resident aliens. In verse 14, the writer says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Earlier in this book, the writer talked about a city. He said that all the people who came before us who lived in faith, those famous people, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, they all lived seeking a city. But then he said, but that city they sought does not exist here on earth. They were looking for a city, a city which is the hope of the earth, the hope of the whole world, and yet it doesn't exist here on earth. The the great people of faith in the past, they looked forward to this city. They looked for it. What is this city that, that he's talking about? The city is heaven. He's referring to heaven. 
the city is heaven. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see the apostle John, he has this great vision. And, and as part of that vision, at the end of the vision, he sees this city descending from heaven. He gets a preview of that city, which is to come. And he tells us what it's going to be like. And he says that in that city, God will be there and we will dwell with him forever. And there will be no more sickness, no more illness, no more death. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more poverty, no more racism, no more hatred. All that is broken in this world will be healed. And if we are honest, that city is what all of us are looking for. In, in all of our endeavors, and in our heart of hearts, that city is what all of us seek after and long for. And the promise that the Bible gives us is that through Jesus, we will get to be part of that city. Right, that city is indeed coming and through Jesus we will get to be part of that city. And so the writer says this is how we live our lives as Christians here on earth. With our eyes fixed on the city which is to come. Waiting for it and looking for it and looking to it. But here's what's interesting. So another name that's used for that city which is a reference to heaven. Another name that's used for it is the kingdom of God. The place where God reigns. And throughout the Bible, there's this constant contrast given between the city of God and the city of man, be between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this earth. And here's what we read in, in that verse we read earlier. Remember chapter 12, verse 28. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we have received, what? Since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So here's what I want to show you. He says, we have received this kingdom. But then here in chapter 13, verse 14, he says, we haven't received it yet. We're still waiting for it. We're still looking for it. So which one is it? Have we already received it? Or are we still waiting to receive it? And the answer is both. In one way, we have already received it. And yet in another way, we haven't received it yet. We're still waiting for it. How does that work? Well, one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to help us wrap our minds around this concept and how this can be, that we, we on the one hand, have received it, and yet we haven't received it yet. The metaphor that the Bible uses is dawn. Dawn, dawn, that, that first part of the day when, when the sun begins to shine and the sky is no longer dark, it's getting brighter, but the sun has not yet crested the horizon. Day has not yet come. At dawn, it is neither day nor night. It's dawn. It's something in between. It's that time when both light and darkness are both present at the same time, and yet neither of them in full force. But once the dawn has started, the good news is there's no turning back. Once you see that first light of dawn, it's only a matter of time before the sun crests the horizon and the full light of day shines forth and completely drives out all the darkness of night. And the Bible says that's where we're at in history. That's where we stand today. It's dawn. Jesus has come. He died on the cross. He defeated death and sin and evil. And he has given us an unshakable kingdom. He has given us eternal life. He's made us citizens of the new city, the city of God. And yet, here we are on earth, still dealing with and grappling with issues of sin and evil and death. And here's what the Bible tells us about this. Paul says to the Philippians, he says that we are citizens of heaven and yet we reside here on earth. There's a specific word that's used there when he talks about us being citizens of heaven and yet residing here on earth. And it's a word which could probably best be translated as resident aliens. A resident alien is a person who's a citizen of one country but has permanent residence in another country. For many years when I lived in Hungary, I was a resident alien. I was a citizen of the United States, but I had permanent residence in Hungary. A resident alien is not a tourist. 
A resident alien isn't somebody who lives out of a suitcase. No, that's their home. They're committed. They're an engaged member of that society where they live. And yet, their ultimate home is somewhere else. And this is a picture of who we are as Christians. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we are resident aliens here on the earth. And so we are to be committed. We are to be engaged in our earthly communities for the purpose of glorifying God in the earthly cities we live in. Lifting up who he is and letting it be seen. Reflecting and showing who he is to other people around us. Our text tells us that that is one of the ways that we are to appropriately worship God as resident aliens as we seek the city that is to come. Jesus told his disciples, he said, I'm building a new community and you are going to be like a city set on a hill for the world to see. Now think about that metaphor and let me say this. You can't be a city all by yourself. In other words, in order to fulfill this calling from God to be a city on a hill, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it. You can't even do it just you and your family or you and your small group of friends. You need others. In order to fulfill that calling from God to be a city on a hill that glorifies him, you need other people. You can't do it just on your own. So we're called to be a community for the sake of the world so that we can fulfill our calling from God in the world so that we can worship him by being a city on a hill whose good deeds point people to our gracious Lord and Savior. But here's the other part of it. You are called to be a community for your own sake as well. Because you and I desperately need this kind of community in order to be able to stand, in order to be able to consistently keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and trusting in him, you need a certain kind of community. So what is that community that we are called to be for the sake of the world? And what kind of community are we called to be for our own sakes? Because we need it. That brings us to our third point. Remember the big idea, how we are to appropriately worship God as resident aliens. And now we talk about the third part and as members of a new community. The writer tells us in these, in these verses what it looks like, what that community looks like that we're called to be, the kind of community also that we desperately need. Number one, in verse one, he says, it is to be a community of brothers and sisters. You need brothers and sisters. He says in verse one, let brotherly love continue. That word brotherly love, it's the Greek word Philadelphia, just like the city, right? The city of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. In English, we have only one word for love. You love your kids, you love tacos, you, you make love to your spouse, and you love your pets, and you use the same word to describe all of those very diverse emotions and actions and levels of commitment. But in ancient Greek, they had four words. They had four different words to describe that. And because what they said is these different kinds of loves, they aren't just different, different amounts of love that you give to other people and other things. They're actually different ways of loving different people and different things. And so the kind of community that we're called to be is the one characterized by this word Philadelphia. In other words, or phileo, Philadelphia, love for the brethren, love for brothers. This is the kind of community we're called to be, one that's uh, characterized by camaraderie. You need people who know you and you know them. You need to move beyond just being acquaintances to the point of becoming family. And this is one of our goals, by the way, with community groups. We want people to really get to know each other, to move beyond just being acquaintances, because we believe that you will never become that which God desires you to be without brothers and sisters. 
So I myself, I'm an only child. I don't have any siblings, but I have kids, and I see the dynamic between my kids, especially I have two kids who are very close in age. And so here's what I see as the dynamic between my, my kids as brother and sister. Number one, they fight like crazy. They are annoying each other all the time. They are completely annoyed with each other about 23 hours a day, and they even like wake up in their sleep. That's how annoyed they are at each other. And even though they belong to the same family, they're very different. They have different personalities. They have different opinions, and they often clash with each other. They're constantly fighting, but they're fiercely loyal to each other, and they would not be who they are without the other one in their life, and they absolutely love each other, even though they have these conflicts. So my kids, here's the other thing. They know each other so well that they know each other's insecurities. They know each other's fears. They know each other's idiosyncrasies, the things that make them kind of weird. In fact, there are probably things that they know about each other that they don't recognize themselves, in themselves. So that's always the case in a family, by the way. I can see things in my wife that she does not see in herself. And I'm sure that she can see things in me that I am blind to about myself. You see, we call those blind spots, and we all have them. See, I know that I have blind spots, but if you were to ask me, hey, Nick, what are your blind spots? I'd be like, how the heck should I know? That's why they're blind spots, because I can't see them. That's by definition. I can't see them. I am blind to them. That's why they're called blind spots. And oftentimes, the, the problem with blind spots is they're, they're actually our greatest weaknesses. Oftentimes, our blind spots are the things which can actually hold us back the most, which can actually lead us into ruin and trouble. And that's a big problem, isn't it? Because if the things which are the most dangerous to us and destructive and potentially harmful in us for ourselves are things which we are completely blind to, that's a huge problem. So how can we deal with our blind spots? The only way to become aware of your blind spots is to allow other people to get to know you well enough that they can see those things about you. But you also need people who are committed to you and who love you enough to show you those blind spots without crushing you in the process. See, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what's wrong with somebody else. Anybody can do that. That's easy. That's easy, but it takes a loving person, a brother or a sister, to come alongside someone and help them see their blind spots in a way that helps them rather than hurts them. You see, in order to grow, you need brothers and sisters, and you're called to be a brother and sister to others. Not a fickle friend, not a fair-weather friend, a committed, loyal brother and sister. That is what the church is to be characterized by. Secondly, a community of people who are not like you. You need a community of people who are not like you. Verse 2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, because by doing so, some have entertained angels unaware. Most likely, this is a reference to Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham shows hospitality to somebody, and they turn out to be mysterious visitors who just happen to be angels. But what is, what is interesting here is this word that is translated hospitality is, remember the word for brotherly love is Philadelphia? This is the word philoxenia. Philoxenia, which literally means love for outsiders. Love for outsiders. So whereas we're told in verse 1 that Christian community is to be characterized by love for each other, love for insiders, now we're told that Christian community is also to be characterized by love for outsiders, love for people who are not like you, not part of your group. And, and so what does this mean? What it means is this, you and I need people in our lives who are not like us. You need people in your life who are not like you. You need people in your life who are not your peers, who are not at the same stage of life that you are at. If you are only ever surrounded by people who are just like you, you will never grow. You need people in your life 
who are at different stages of life. You need people in your life who are at different economic status than you. You need people in your life who are different culturally and ethnically than you are. You will never grow unless you encounter people who are not like you. See, here's the thing. If you spend all your time with people who are like you, same age, same stage of life, they have the same political and, and, and religious opinions and everything, then, then what happens is you just become an echo chamber where you just hear the same thing over and over, the same opinions, the same thoughts that you already have. They're just all echoing them back at you. You see, what we need in order to grow, we actually need to encounter people who are different than us. In order for you to be light in the world, you need outsiders. You need outsiders so that you can love them and help them to become insiders because that is what God has done for you in Christ. Thirdly, you need a caring community. Verse 3. You know, we're reminded in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Fourthly, you need a counter-cultural community. Look what he says in verse 4. Let marriage be held in high honor among all. Let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, but keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now here's what I want you to see. These are not just random moral commands. This isn't just a list of moral commands that you have to keep. These are radically different approach to sex and money than what was common in that society. And I'll say this, they're radically different approaches to sex and money than what is found in our society. We live in a society today too where marriage is not always held in high regard. We live in a society where people oftentimes love money and use people rather than the other way around, right? The way it should be that we love people and use money. There's an ancient Christian document called The Letter to Diognetus. It's not in the Bible. It's something that came about after, about 100 years after. And in it, though, the writer describes what Christian people are like. And in one part, he says this. Christians are like this. They share their food with all people, but they share their bed only with their spouse. That was a radical thing in those days because people were selfish, right? They would keep their food for themselves but share their bed with others. He says, they are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. When they are reviled, they bless. When they are insulted, they return the insult with honor. See, what that's describing is that Christians were known for being radically countercultural in their approach to money, sex, and power, and people noticed. It stood out. That's the kind of community we're called to be for the sake of the world, in order to show them who God is and what he's like, and for our own sakes as well. We've got two more and then I'm done. In verse 7, he says, remember your leaders. So it's to be a community characterized by shepherds and teachers. He says, remember your leaders. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, don't be led away by bad teaching, but your hearts need to be fed with grace. See, what that means is that we need a community which is characterized by good teaching, where the gospel is championed, where the Bible is taught, where bad doctrine is refuted. That's very important to this kind of community. And lastly, we need a community of people to worship with, and to pray for. See, that's the thing. So we, we've talked about worshiping in word and deed in verses 15 and 16. But in verse 18, interestingly, the writer says this, please pray for me. Please pray for us. Here's the thing I want you to know. That the church is to be that kind of community. Not only a place where you come to be prayed for, but a place where you come to pray for others. In other words, not only to receive, but also to minister to others with the gifts that God has given you. And I'll finish today by saying this, and we'll read that last section as our benediction. The final closing for today is this question. This community that's described here is beautiful, 
But where can we actually get the power to live like this? Where can we get the power to live this kind of life? Where can we get the power to become this kind of community? The answer is actually given in two places in this text. Verse 12 and verse 5. In verse 12, we're said, Because Jesus suffered outside the gates. Because he bore shame and reproach and scorn for you. In other words, Jesus became an outcast so that you could be accepted. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus lost his community as he bore our sins on the cross, as he was forsaken by his father. You see, that was the intense spiritual pain and suffering of the cross. It was more than just the physical pain. It was this intense spiritual pain as our sins were placed on him and he lost his connection with the father. He lost his community for our sakes so that we could be brought in to this new community, so we could become citizens of this new city. That's the message of the gospel. That's the motivation. And in verse five, he says that Jesus promised he will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, it is only by his power in our lives that he gives us. That is the only way that we can live out this vision for community that glorifies him and which we ourselves desperately need in order to stand strong and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision of community. Thank you, Lord, that you lost your community so that we could gain one. Lord, you lost heaven so that we could gain it. And thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that you have made us new people in you. And Lord, I pray that we would live out as new people this new kind of community. Lord, we know that we are called to it and we know that we ourselves desperately need it. So Lord, we pray that you would do it in our lives and help us by your power because you are with us to live it out for your glory and for the sake of others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.